So I'm Alexandra Morton, and I'm an independent biologist on the coast of British Columbia. And I see the enormous potential to restore wild salmon by using this incredible science that is being developed, where you can actually read the immune system of the fish, and in this way they can talk to us. If we were to sample the fish uh, every few hundred kilometers on their vast migrations down the rivers and out to sea, their immune systems would light up uh, with information about whether the water was too warm or whether they were fighting pathogens or hungry or pollutants. And in this way, we could find out where we're harming them and go back to those areas and make changes and then ask the fish the next year if we made it better for them or not. And so in this way, the salmon become our teachers and we also learn how to behave. And so I see a world where we learn to be a better animal and to allow the world around us to thrive while we thrive, which you know, we absolutely have to learn. Otherwise, it's, it's a pretty dark future for us. Hi, I'm Mark Lern Young, author of Orcas Everywhere, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. And speaking of facts and science, I hope this finds you healthy, happy, and vaccinated. So I didn't get to tell our guests this until now. But when I was living in Toronto writing for TV shows and movies, my agent asked, if you could make movies about any three stories in the world, what would they be? My answers? The Golden Spruce by John Valiant, Victoria's Raging Grannies, and Alexandra Morton and her work with whales. My agent gave me a funny look and told me it really was time for me to move home to Vancouver. I did. I met John and the grannies, and then I discovered that one of my closest friends, Scott Renyard, was filming Alexandra Morton every chance he got. So I was fascinated by Alexandra when she was the whale lady. So of course I've followed her adventures fighting for the orcas and BC's wild salmon and us by researching the impact of salmon farms and sea lice. We spoke once before for Scanna, feel free to check out that episode. And when she released her essential new book, Not On My Watch, I was thrilled to have the chance to talk with her again. The last time we met, we met in person. This time, because pandemic, we connected over Zoom. There was a storm at her place in the Broughton Archipelago, so there are places where the Zoom audio here gets a bit choppy. It's raining really hard, and that might be part of the problem. And we've cleaned it up where we could. Something about Morton in a storm felt oddly appropriate, because ever since she started looking into the impact of open pen fish farms, she's been at the center of the storm. Just interviewing her means this episode and our podcast will get trolled. It did the last time we talked to her. So if you'd like to help us share more conversations like this, please support us at patreon.com. It's our Patreon patrons who make this possible. You can also visit our site, scanna.org, where you can make one-time donations via Ko-fi. Also, please subscribe. It's easy. Do it now. Just click subscribe. You can also help us out by buying my books about orcas or buying my books that aren't about orcas. Those ones tend to be funnier. They are all on sale wherever you buy books. Yes, we do sell books on my site, which is great. So if you want to go to our site, fantastic. But whenever you can, please support your local bookstore. They really need your help right now. And if you'd like your books autographed, email us and I'll tell you how I can sign and send out book plates. Also, please check out our new podcast, Orca Bites, where we feature shorter bite-sized interviews about orcas, oceans, ecoethics, and the environment. And now, author, activist, and scientist, Alexandra Morton, on fighting fish farms, fighting Canada's Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and living at the center of the storm. The
So because we're in COVID world, we should start off with how are you? Where are you? I'm, I think I'm good. I am uh, on an island off Vancouver Island overlooking Blackfish Sound, which to me is the most amazing body of water in the world. And uh, yeah, I'm sitting here in my living room next to the wood stove. Now, you were saying that a year in isolation has been good for you. I mean, that's where you generally live. You generally live in pretty isolated area. It's true. So, but so how have things changed for you? Well, prior to the pandemic, I was on the road twice a month coming down to Vancouver. I was really barely home uh, because there's a point where you just have to go and talk to people and go to meetings and try to bring the urgency of the situation in the wilderness to the people that are in the city. So yeah, I was on the road all the time and, and basically entering rooms full of people who, who really did not like me, did not want to hear what I had to say. And so the uh, act of staying home for a year for me in, in many ways, although I'm certainly ready to, to move around again now. Can you talk about deciding to write your book and what prompted you to, to finally tell your story? I mean, to finally tell this story, because I know this is not your first book. And, you know, I know your other books quite well. They were real inspirations for me. Oh, thanks very much. I experienced uh, an uprising during the fight for wild salmon. I spent years trying to, to get some action to protect them, talking first to government, eventually to the people directly to British Columbians. Uh, but then really to First Nations and to the governments that are in charge of these very local areas. And in the summer of uh, 2017, uh, the First Nations of the Broughton Archipelago began to occupy the salmon farms in their territories. And I participated in this for 280 days beside them. And it was so extraordinary to see that once the uh, spark was lit, the government agreed finally to allow. And so that is in process right now. But I thought it was important to let people know that you can lose for decades. And I certainly thought about this a lot. And so uh, that's why I wrote the book. But, but once I wrote about the occupation, I realized I had to put the whole story in because otherwise we just sounded like a bunch of discontented people who decided to do this out of the blue when really, in fact, it was after 30 years of First Nations and others saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <clears throat> this industry, the salmon farming industry uh, is harming wild salmon, is harming whales, is causing algae blooms uh, and really needs to be controlled I mean, at first I thought they just had to get off the wild salmon migration routes, but now I realize they just have to get out of the ocean completely. And if they want to continue, build a tank and get in it and operate from there. Now, it's fascinating because my image of fish farming was always that it was tank-based, right? And I, I think from like before talking to you before talking to Scott Rainer and other people, I'd always imagined that fish farming was land-based. I had never realized that fish farming was not only ocean-based, but it seems to be like the equivalent of free-range cattle. Like, hi, you can have all the crown land you want because you're ranchers. Like, I mean, it seems to be very, like, like very wild west in that respect. Can you explain that and, and how that works and why that works? <laughs> I really do wish I knew why. That's such a good question. Uh, yeah, salmon farms are the size of a football field. Um, they're a set of aluminum walkways and hanging down. In some, the farms literally produce several tons of waste per day, fish feces. And the farmers don't shovel any manure. It's just all drops into the ocean. And they also get the oxygen from the ocean to keep their fish alive. And they get the temperature from the ocean. So they're getting a lot of free services 
and making a profit by externalizing their costs. So by that, I mean all of the waste that drops, but in that waste, there's pathogens, there's viruses, bacteria, uh, the first nations, the wildlife are paying the cost of those pathogens being in the natural environment and disrupting the entire life chain around these uh, operations. So, but land-based fish farming is taking off across the world. And like you say, it has been done for a long time in many places. It's cheaper and easier to do it if you let the ocean wash away all the waste. And, and that's why the companies are doing it here in British Columbia. When you were talking about externalizing the costs, the concept that blew my mind when I was when I first started getting into environmental writing was the idea of externalities and realizing that all of these huge industries exist through phenomenal national subsidies that we don't acknowledge, which is we clean up the mess. So the oil industry, if a river becomes toxic, they don't have to pay for it. Therefore, it's an externality. And it feels like that's the deal with the fish farms, isn't it? That they're not picking up the tab for any for any impact that they have on the oceans or the salmon. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, I uh, for years and years I thought there's no reason for them to allow this sea lice outbreak to happen, for example, or now the virus outbreaks. And then I saw the movie The Corporation, where they explain a lot of things, and I was like oh, actually they do need to release all those lice because otherwise they have to pay to contain them. They have to pay to oxygenate water that is not open to the ocean. And that's when I realized that this impact on the environment was part of their business plan. It was part of how they were making money. And, and at that point I thought, okay, you guys just need to get out of the ocean completely because you're never gonna clean up because doing all this damage was part of how they are making such a phenomenal amount of money. It's really, it's really insidious, it's wrong. And we know it's wrong and it's catching up with us now in so many ways around the world. I mean, honestly, I cannot believe I have spent my whole adult life fighting salmon farms. It just seems, ridiculous. But when I look at it uh, from a global perspective, I realize I'm part of a huge army a, a, across the planet that is trying to protect life on earth from this corporate structure of having shareholders far away that aren't impacted by anything that happens. And these corporate laws that protect this behavior that is so damaging, that's where the laws are. Uh, they're not to protect communities or animals or the ecosystem that we live in and need. Um, so uh, it, it makes it feel a little bit more like this battle was, um, was, was worth it. Because if we all work in our various corners, obviously we're linked together eventually and it becomes a planetary movement, which I think it is at this point. I love that you just brought up the corporation. I just did an interview with Joel Backen about the new corporation. He's the person who wrote it and directed it. And I'm sure people will listen to this and go, why are you talking about corporations? Like, because all roads lead there when you're dealing with environmental issues. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting when I, I ran for MLA this fall uh, for the Green Party. And I heard from so many people and I learned so much. Uh, it's interesting when you run for government, people, <laughs> they're ready to really blast you, uh, which once the anger is out, you actually hear some brilliant solutions. And I kept hearing over and over, for example, with the logging industry, there was too many layers on that cake. There was the government who gets the stumpage and then there's the corporation. And then there's the companies that are actually doing the logging and then there's the people. Well, if you take out that corporation layer, everything works. People don't need to cut as many trees. 
you can do much more sustainable things with the trees that you cut down. Well, it's the same with this whole salmon farming situation. We have salmon farmers who are farming on land. They are small companies with, you know, they make more money when they make more fish. But when you have a corporation involved, they don't really care how many fish they are. They just want that share price to go up. And so uh, it's deadly because it really is a cancer model. They need to grow, they need to grow, they need to grow with, with no mind to uh, the fact that they're killing the very body that they're in, which in this case is the ocean. I mean, they're gonna kill themselves off. They are killing themselves off in the process of, of following their business plan. It's, it's, really, it's really deranged. It doesn't make sense and it has to stop. Can you talk about how you came to run for the Green Party in BC? How did that happen? It came out of a sense of complete frustration. And um, I just see one government after the next cave in in front of this industry and other industries. And I thought, okay, well maybe, I mean, people have told me again and again, you cannot make a difference unless you are in government. And so I, I have tried everything else. And I thought, okay, I haven't tried this. And I got 20% of the vote, which is the highest the Green Party's ever gotten in the North Island. Um, and uh, I probably won't do it again because it's not really fair. My interest really does lie with the natural world. But my feeling was if you could create content communities that were sustainable, not just the buzzword sustainable, but like the action sustainable, then, uh, then the wildlife would be free to thrive. You had to bring the two of them into balance. And um, I was shocked to hear so many good ideas from people. And I just, I just kept thinking over and over, why doesn't government do these things? Like the tiny house communities, the community gardens, uh, the, the more sustainable practices of all kinds that will actually allow our children to have jobs because the children are really getting the short end of this stick. You know, when they, when they talk about, oh, we don't want to lose jobs, you're talking about your job for the next couple of years. You're not thinking about your children being able to have the same job. And, and that's a really disturbing part of this whole thing. I, I keep thinking these corporate CEOs at some level, some niggling level must think, ah, I wish somebody would just stop us a little bit because there's really not going to be anything left for my kids, much less my grandkids. Anyway. What was the political ride like for you? Uh, it was nasty. It was, it was nasty. Um, yeah. I realized that the Steelworkers Union has a huge say in all of this with the fish farms because they represent the fish farm workers and they show their muscle. They showed themselves during the campaign and they didn't do it in a nice way. And you know, I would say to the Steelworkers Union, if you really are concerned about your members and their future, you would be a huge proponent for land-based aquaculture because that's where the jobs are in the future. Nobody wants to buy fish that have killed off whales, you know, never mind everything else. So um, yeah, it was, it was a rough ride. I, I tend to be pretty pragmatic when I look at politics and my, my track record of predicting wins and losses is pretty good. And I was very optimistic for you because I thought everybody in your area must know you, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, pretty much everybody in BC knows who you are, but I thought, especially in your riding, people would know you. So I was, I, I was rooting for you to do better than 20% of the vote. I, I well, thought you had a shot. Them knowing me wasn't entirely an asset. <laughs> it was interesting because um, the logging industry was very concerned about me. Although I had some great talk with the loggers. I just, I mean, they too knew what the solutions are, but the fishermen, it was interesting. They suddenly worried that I was going to close everything down, which I have never said that. Um, so I kind of like, well, you guys have a guilty complex. Maybe we should look into that a little bit. What are you talking about? So people who um, knew me as an advocate for wild salmon were suddenly concerned that I might really straighten things out around here. 
um, this riding, I was very surprised to find out, has um, one of the highest uh, pay rates for working people, like the highest income, but also one of the highest child poverty rates. And, and that, was, uh, that was pretty shocking to me. That's disgusting. That's wrong. Uh, so I would have tried to straighten things out. And I think that part of that is to listen to people and really water and nurture and support these fabulous community plans of what needs to happen to make communities happier and more content uh, and more sustainable. But of course, those who are pillaging really aren't with that program and, um, and they saw me as a threat. Wow. Okay. No, I was, I was fascinated to see you running and I thought, you know, when people were looking at which greens could pick up seats, yours, you know, yours was the name they kept coming back to going, okay, you're the wild card in the race in a lot of ways. Well, the other thing that happened is it was such a snap election that everyone was scrambling and there was no support from the Green Party. And I, we didn't know what we were doing. And a bunch of people gathered around me to help who were phenomenal and have become lifelong friends. But we were really winging it. And, and then I couldn't go out and campaign, obviously. I couldn't go door to door and talk to people. So I did it by Zoom and, and Skype and, and phone. It was interesting because so many people said, I cannot believe you phoned me. I was like, really? I, obviously, I'm going to talk to you. I mean, particularly the nurses and the teachers. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was, it was a difficult, difficult all around for everybody. Going back to government, but let's go to federal government. One of the things that I've been fascinated and horrified by watching your ride has been your treatment by Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And I feel like there are two different departments of fisheries and oceans, and I don't really understand how this works. But my initial experience with them was with the scientists. So my initial, if you'd asked me about the DFO originally, to me, they were John Ford and Christy Miller and people doing this incredible research. And then I found myself dealing with the political side of the DFO that you talked about. I was floored by my experiences with them. Uh, I ended up have when I was covering the Tahlequah story, I actually was gaslit by the DFO and I went, oh my God, this is what Alexandra was talking about. Um, I asked a question at, a, at an international press conference and was uh, actually had the person from the DFO give an outright lie in response to my question. And I thought it, I actually thought it was a softball, which was which made it even weirder. And then I was cut off from the microphones. And then when somebody else followed up the question, they were told, yes, he was inaccurate. And I actually reached out to the reporter and said, no, I wasn't. Here's my research. I went, oh my God, I'm I'm being Alexandra Morton. Uh, can you explain what that's all about? Because it's it was mind-blowing. And I know and you I know you've been dealing with that all the time. Yes, it's very frustrating because there are fabulous scientists. There's many others too, and there's field biologists, there's conservation and protection officers. Uh, so there's this incredible um, opportunity in Canada through the Access to Information Act. You can go on a website and for $5, you can order the conversations, the emails between certain uh, federal employees between two different dates. And I have now read thousands and thousands, like oh, probably over different conversations. And so what is going on is you have a structure that is built not to protect fish. The structure is around aquaculture, there is no receptors within DFO for any information that the salmon farming industry is damaging wild salmon. There's nobody whose position in DFO is the health of wild salmon. There's no director of wild salmon. There's directors of aquaculture. There's a huge aquaculture department. It's well-funded. And every time they find out that some scientist has done research that shows there's impact, the only thing they do is write media lines. They have hundreds of email conversations back and forth, whittling it down. 
it makes me furious because they created a monster. They never made the salmon farming industry follow the laws, which include very um, firm descriptions of what you were allowed to put in the water. Oh, so they got super busy about this virus, Piscine orthoeovirus, because it was in the hatcheries and it was in the farms. And they did everything they could to hide every bit of research that said, this virus is from the North Atlantic. It came with the salmon farming industry and it is causing the red blood cells of Chinook salmon to explode en masse. And then they get, you get, you've got the minister up at the top, they switch them out so quickly, they never get a chance to, to know what is going on and they get into the position and who are they gonna believe? This strange woman out there in the wilderness or their senior management who have been there for a long time and must know what is going on. Yeah, they do know what's going on. So uh, we are now in this really remarkable situation where the minister, Bernadette Jordan, has broken ranks with her senior staff. And when she had to decide whether to renew the federal licenses for 19 salmon farms in the Discovery Islands, which are so important. So this is off of Campbell River. And this is the migration route of the biggest wild salmon river in the world, which is the Fraser, along with a whole bunch of other rivers. And the First Nations, there's seven First Nations that uh, call that place their territory. And when the federal licenses of these farms expire, the minister has to consult without, and the minister said, okay. And so she told the farmers on the 17th of December that they were not allowed to put any more fish in their farms. They could finish growing the fish that were there, but they weren't allowed to put any more in. And so Maui, the biggest fish farm company in the world, and also the biggest in British Columbia, thought it was appropriate <laughs> to sue the minister. And they won. They won last Monday. And they uh, are now going to try to force their fish back into a territory where the First Nations told them to get out. And by the way, this is on a migration route of a salmon run that is in collapse. There was only 27 Fraser River sockeye that went back to the Shuswap Lake last year. 27. I mean, this is this is a runs of thousands. So this is not a good look for Maui. Um, I don't know what anybody's going to do. The whole situation is very much in play. Will the minister's lawyers sue Maui or appeal or will the First Nations appeal or will Maui really go through with this? <laughs> Given that they always try to look like they are the friends of First Nations, uh, certainly they've tipped their cards on that one. And uh, so I found myself in the extraordinary position of being able to support my minister. And in the court, um, you know, the First Nations and the minister are on the same side, even though for some reason the court didn't allow the First Nations to attend as, uh, as uh, interveners. However, in, in, the, in the purpose and mission of this, the nations, the biologists, the environmental groups, the minister, all on one side, and the three Norwegian companies are standing there by themselves, uh, trying to figure out how they're gonna keep going when more and more nations are kicking them out. So I hope that people will write to the minister and encourage her because she she basically wants to get reelected and that's not even a criticism. I, I know that for, for a government to exist, obviously they have to get reelected and it has to be a priority of theirs. But here we have one of the biggest, the biggest salmon run in the world on the verge of extinction. And are we really going to let this happen just because these three companies don't wanna follow the trend of their industry and get into a tank now? So it's, it's yeah, it's a very interesting situation, but First Nation governments are, are really rising to this. I mean, I really feel for them. They're facing so much poverty and drugs and racism of all kind and, you know, drinking water that is they, they can't drink. It, it, it's it's I cannot fathom the amount of issues that First Nation governments are trying to deal with on a day to day basis. And so, 
to divert money to fighting fish farms in court, you know, if they do that, you know that is very, very important to them. And that's what they're doing. And they are showing extraordinary leadership. And so my focus right now is to provide whatever I can when they need it, um, whether they pay me or not, I don't care because these are, these are governments who really want salmon. They want life on this coast. And so I'm really all about helping them. Thanks. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about going back to you being gaslit, one of the most, I think the most shocking interview that I've done in years was with Daniel Polly. And for context outside of you and I, this is pretty much the most respected fishery scientist in the world, talking about going out with you and then seeing the DFO absolutely gaslight the work you were doing and how shocked he was and how angry he was. And again, I mean, I know you get into this in your book, but where does this come from? I mean, it just, like the fact you've got somebody like Daniel Pauly saying, they are lying. And that that doesn't change things. Just it floored me. Well, yeah, yeah. So they accused me of sticking the lace on, as if there was any reason in the world I would do that. Here I am fighting these farms uh, at, at no personal benefit, driving myself into financial ruin, completely diverting my life, which was to study whales. Uh, they decide I am sticking lice on these fish, which really kind of is a peek into their mentality if they could even come up with that. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, like you, thought DFO Science was, or, or DFO was, was a very, very uh, wonderful organization because I came to British Columbia on the advice of a DFO scientist, Dr. Mike Big, who told me where to find the A5 pod of Orca, which I was interested in finding because I was studying one of their members that was tragically um, in captivity. And so I entered this whole fray in a very trusting mode. I trusted what my government said. I trusted what DFO and the uh, DFO scientists said. And I'll tell you, at this point in time, I do not believe anything anyone says about viruses or um, ecosystems. I, I really need to make the decision myself. I need to hear from a, a lot of different sides of the issue, need to become more educated. And um, it, it's, it drove me, I, I am not naturally a person who can be depressed, but I got there because not only was I going through this lying and obfuscation, I was watching things go extinct. I saw grizzly bears that no longer looked like grizzly bears because they, their legs had, were so long because they, they just didn't have a stomach. They were just rib cages and spinal cords. They were emaciated. And then to read about the Southern resident whales not being able to take a calf to full term because they're starving and partially because there's no Chinook in the Fraser River. And to know that these salmon farms are amplifying a virus that is causing the cells of Chinook salmon to explode. I, I, um, you know, there was many meetings that I was in and I, I was trying to think of how to communicate the situation to people. And I kept thinking, should I just jump up on the table and start screaming to get their attention? Obviously that is not a good idea because nobody listens to a screaming woman, but your mind casts around as to how, how to deal with this. But, but what I had to accept was that these people were not stupid. The people I was up against were liars and they were defending something that was wrong. Um, and, but in the, to their defense, they were given a policy that was impossible. They were told you must promote salmon farms and you must protect wild salmon. So they were given an impossible mandate, but then they made a bad choice. They made a dishonest choice. They should have said to government after government, we can't do this. We can't do both. Here's our su suggestion. You know, you can't move the wild fish, but you can move the farm fish. So let's move them and let's have both industries. And had they done that, British Columbia would be a leader in closed containment aquaculture. And we would still have lots of wild salmon, which Mark, I have to wonder, is that the problem? 
lots of wild salmon. Is lots of wild salmon the problem? Certainly it drives the market price down of farm salmon, but it also means you cannot dam some rivers. It also means you have to behave as a logging company in a way that you don't naturally want to behave. It also means you can't dump your mining tailings into the river, unless of course you do, and then you get away with it. Wild salmon are in the way of so much, and, and it really hurts to say this, but they are in the way of so much that I have to wonder at some level in government, are people saying, oh my God, those fish, what? They're still coming back and there's still 20 of them? Gosh, darn it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think people, I don't think some level of government wants wild salmon at all. <laughs> that just gave me chills because I found myself asking the same question about the Southern residents. I bet you do, yep. I, I feel, I. I feel like there are people in the federal government who are going, damn, there's still 74 of them. And they're having babies. <laughs> uh, yeah, and honestly, the question that I got gaslit around was what I was asking just how, it was It was about the, uh, uh, I don't know how to say this with air quotes, so I'll just say, imagine the air quotes, the rescue attempt for Scarlet that I, did not feel was a rescue attempt. Mm. And I asked about why certain actions were allowed in American waters and not in Canadian waters. And I was told that wasn't the case. And I'm like, dude, I heard this from your partner, right? Like I actually heard this from some, like this was somebody who was supposedly partnered with you who said everything stopped in Canadian waters. Right. And I could not get a straight answer to what I thought was a freaking puffball question of why are the, you know, why is this happening differently in Canada than the US? Um, so the other part of that, and I'm assuming this happens with fish farms as well, there are all sorts of laws. And again, I'm going to go back to think imaginary air quotes that are put on the books so that you can say the government is doing this to protect the orcas. And they're imaginary laws because mm -hmm. there's no enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The person, the the pleasure boater who pretty much zoomed through a pot of orcas, who we, you know, if, if news footage cannot identify that boat, somebody's being pretty lazy, no charges. No charges under any of these laws. Is that the same case with the fish farms? Like, are there laws in the books that are just being completely ignored? Absolutely. Like section 56 of the fishery general regulation, which says thou shalt not put fish with a disease agent into the waters. Um, and, and then the, the lying about these disease agents. It's um, I, I recently got a access to information document about a bacteria that causes mouth rot in the farms. And the series of events around that was really illuminating. So in October of last year, uh, DFO scientists went to senior management in DFO and said, uh, you know, it, this, this bacteria is in most of the salmon farms and it is now accumulating outside of the salmon farms in the Discovery Islands. And we think it's killing a large percentage of the Fraser sockeye and also coho and Chinook. Well, the senior management beetled right off to the Salmon Farmers Association and said, oh, this is about you. This is going to be a problem because this is in your farm and wild salmon infected with this are not having a good outcome. In other words, they're not surviving. And they never told the minister. While the minister was in consultation with seven First Nations about the Discovery Islands out of concern for the Fraser River sockeye, they never told the minister. Wow. Uh, so, um, yeah, the, the minister now knows and she has to make a decision now about these farms and we'll just see how afraid the minister is. Uh, Maui won their lawsuit, so the minister now has to reconsider putting those fish back in the Discovery Islands. And on Wednesday, DFO gave Maui over $300,000 to put solar panels on a hatchery where they're making more Atlantic salmon. When there are hundreds of people at salmon trying to 
restore habitat and plant eelgrass and make sure the herring can spawn on something, the eggs survive. And they gave $300,000 to a company who they told could not put fish into the Discovery Islands anymore. So I, I don't know, Mark. What was the rationale for giving these, sorry, sorry what was the rationale for, for gifting, like, was this a gift? Like, what was? Hey, it was a government grant uh, to, to help fight climate change because Maui would be using solar panels instead of as much electricity as they're using on this uh, hatchery near Sayward to produce more Atlantic salmon. In the end, here's the thing, in the end, all of that is just noise because licenses will expire. And so the minister will have to consult with all First Nations. And it, it's really not fair that all the weight gets put on these First Nation governments, but they will have to make a choice whether to say yes or no to the renewal of the licenses of the farms in their territories. So that's pretty well all that matters at this point. And um, if government wants to run around trying to be everybody's friend, but nobody's friend, that, that is a, that's a fool's mission, uh, particularly at this moment in history. But I still feel it's important to support the minister and make sure she feels she's not alone in this fight and um, that when, when she does something that protects wild salmon, even though the companies are pushing back and her department is, is handing out money to these companies, we can still support the minister. She's in Nova Scotia, so it's, it's really hard to know how she can understand what is going on here. And um, I hope people consider supporting her in, in keeping these farm salmon out of the ocean. Now, I've been listening to the interviews you've been doing around the book, and we've been going to the nice depressing places, uh, but you just went to support the minister. So the one time I really heard joy in your voice speaking in these interviews was when you were talking about the magic of salmon breeding. <laughs> and that was just really inspiring. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And and no offense to all the people who are working in hatcheries, but here's the thing about hatcheries. The salmon actually have the whole mating thing down. They, they can handle that. And if you think about uh, when a salmon enters a river, it's not feeding, it's uh, changing its body drastically from saltwater to fresh. It's surrounded by predators, it's shallow, there's bears, there's rocks, there's waterfalls, and they're growing eggs and sperm. And you know, some of them are swimming a thousand kilometers. And what do they do while they're doing all of those things? The males dress up, they grow stripes, humps, teeth, they blush brilliant red uh, and green. And the reason that they do that is because they are advertising to the girls. And the females look at these males and say, yeah, not you, not you, you. She picks based on the way the male is displaying his body. The fact that he went out into the North Pacific and he came back and he's basically saying, I did the whole trip and I got all this left for you. And she's making her choices. They are long and lean. These are fish, These like, they're like bullets. They can just get way up that river. But if you look at the Adams River sockeye, this is a huge, deep bodied, powerful fish. You go to the end of the Fraser, up to the early Stewart's and they're tiny, gorgeous little, like their, their faces look like little Arabian horses. They're all so different. It's amazing to me that they are all called sockeye. And that's based on the female choice. And so instead of taking them and deciding which fish is going to breed with which fish, which takes away the power of rapid evolution and, and the ability for these fish to track the changes in their river, the better method, I think, is this genomic profiling where we follow the fish on their migration and we find out where we are hurting them and we try to get out of their way, just get out of their way and, and allow them to come back. And when they spawn in an area, protect that spawning ground. Don't let anything happen to it because those naturally produced eggs are the key to the future. They are the fish that is adapted. That's why fish are genetically different. The different runs are genetically different because they, they do this incredible dance for each other. 
And uh, so I, I think, yeah, that if we did, if we went this route, now that we have the science, unfortunately, DFO's got it in, under lock and key and they're muzzling the scientist that's doing this work. However, she's still there and I would love to unlock that science and use it to restore the wild salmon of this coast using everybody who's already out there in the field to take these samples, take the measurement of the environment. You enter all this data, you get the mathematical modeling geniuses who walk amongst us to look at all that data and find the pulse. Why are some runs turning on? Why are some failing? We could learn a lot if we put our mind to it. We could work with these fish and learn to live with them. And they would reward us with millions of fish coming back. I have no doubt at all. Can you just say a little bit about their ability to regenerate and the ability of oceans to come back? Because I've got to say that's the one thing that I've found inspiring doing this work is hearing about places that have managed to come back when we've left them alone. Well, we're still running this experiment when it comes to salmon, but in the Broughton Archipelago, where the First Nations, the Muskomatsawadenik and the Namgis have won the authority to start removing these farms, I have spent uh, since 2001, so I'm, I'm starting my 22nd year of sea lice research. And so what I do is I look at the fish at intervals as they leave the river and then as they pass the farms. And until now, the fish look beautiful at the rivers. They're just these tiny little sparkling slips of fish in these large schools. And then they get to the farms and they're the sea lice grow up and start eating them to death. Now, last spring, they, uh, the, the worst farms had been removed, Glacier Falls and Birdwood, who these were, these were huge farms by, owned by Cermak and Maui. They were right next to the rivers, the Ada and the Viner rivers that produce all these pink salmon and chum salmon. And for the first time last spring, set my big net and pulled it in, looked at the fish and oh my gosh, they. They were fat and sassy. They were sparkly blues and silvers, deep jet black eyes, not the cloudy film they get when they go by the farms. And uh, it was a feeling I, in, in my heart that I just really had to sort of stand back a minute and be like, what is that feeling? It was joy. It, it felt like my heart was ringing. I finally wasn't seeing these little fish suffering and poked full of holes and laid to waste by shareholders in Europe, um, they were going to survive. And this summer, they're gonna come home back to their rivers. And I, I hope that, uh, I hope they had a good life out there and that there's a, a surge of them so that the First Nations who have worked so incredibly hard to get rid of these farms can be rewarded and understand the magnitude of their action. Awesome, that feels like a perfect place to end this off. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. The sun has actually come out. So yeah, we probably could have linked up, but I really appreciate that interview. That was great. Excellent. And um, thanks. And yeah, hopefully things will go well for the minister and for this case. Yeah. Well, the book's on the bestseller list. That's very exciting. So that means a lot of people are going to know what's going on. Yeah. So I would suggest that members of parliament pick it up and read it because it's about them. And like I said, I put citations in the end. So if anyone's, you know, upset about it and wants to sue me, let's do that. Let's go to court because maybe some of these things do need to be resolved in court. It's, it's, we're down to the wire and there is a pathway through this. And why don't we do that? It just seems like so much less effort on, on everybody's part uh, to much greater reward. So that is my hope. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye. Thanks again for checking out Scana. This podcast is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you want to help us share more stories about orcas, oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, and help me chase information from and about the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, please join our pod at patreon.com backslash scanna. If the podcast doesn't work for you, I'm Joe Rogan. 
I'd like to thank all of our Patreon patrons, including Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Nancy Campbell, Darren Laren Young, Philip Ashdown, Kayla, Christina, Rob, Catherine Dodds, Solomon Siegel, and The Green Channel, where you can check out my movies, The Green Chain, and The Green Film. I'd also like to thank Yosef Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, Orcas of the Salish Sea, and Big Whales Small World, and Orcas Everywhere. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter so you don't miss upcoming episodes with guests like world-renowned primatologist Franz DeWall, author of Mama's Last Hug, the Seattle Times epic Orca reporter Linda Mapes, and Sea Shepherd Captain Paul Watson, who's talking about his new book, Orcopedia, about orcas in captivity. Be sure to check out our show notes at scanna.org. And remember, our Scanna magazine on Medium. This features excerpts from Paul Watson's Orcopedia and a recent guest essay from the director of Bright Green Lives, Julia Barnes. Follow us on social media. We're everywhere. And share the show with your friends. Heck, it's a pandemic. Share it with everyone. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu. Our audio engineer is the magical Tease McKenzie. Thanks to our wizard of web, Katie Brown, and producer's assistant, Harlan Fitzgerald. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson.